Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Our guest today is a writer that many of you are familiar with and many of you have read, especially if you're fans of science fiction and fantasy. The first book I read of his was Ender's Game years ago, and since then I've enjoyed his books on the craft of writing. So Orson Scott Card is the author of the novels Ender's Game, Ender's Shadow, and Speaker of the, for the Dead, which are widely read by both adults and younger readers and are increasingly used in schools. His most recent series, the Young Adult Pathfinder series, is taking readers in a new direction. Besides these and other science fiction novels, Orson Scott Card writes contemporary fantasy, biblical novels, the American Frontier Fantasy series, the tales of Alvin Maker, poetry, and many plays and scripts. He was born in Washington and grew up in California, Arizona, and Utah. He served a mission for the LDS Church in Brazil in the early 70s. Besides his writing, he teaches occasional classes and workshops and directs plays. He frequently teaches writing and literature courses at Southern Virginia University. So, Orson Scott Card, thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Now, it's an honor to speak with you about science fiction writing. I've always been a huge fan of stories that take us to other worlds and explore aspects of what make us human. I feel like science fiction has a great opportunity to ask big questions. What was it that first drew you to this, um, I guess, this field? Was it um, an innate you know, desire to write in this field, or did you enjoy reading it as you grew up? I'm curious, um, what sort of the genesis uh, that led to some of your writing? Well, I went through spates of science fiction reading when I was young, uh, I'd read every book by a certain author that was available in a local library, and uh, then I'd leave science fiction alone for sometimes years at a time. Uh, but I was aware of science fiction, and I read some of the classics as a kid, uh, the Heinlein Juveniles, uh, Andre Norton. Uh, those, those were my foundation uh, of science fiction reading. And then later, getting closer to adulthood, that is in my late teens, starting when I was 16, I was reading Isaac Asimov, the Foundation Trilogy, and that inspired me to really want to come up with a science fiction story, and that's when I came up with the idea of the battle room and battle school that figured large in uh, Ender's Game when I eventually wrote that. So I thought of that idea when I was 16, but I didn't think of myself as a writer or a Certainly not as a science fiction writer. I just thought of it as a thing that I would like to write sometime. Um, and I tried writing many other things. I, I wrote lots and lots of audio plays uh, for a company called Living Scriptures in Ogden, Utah, and uh, became, I don't want to say a master, but certainly proficient in the uh, field of audio plays. Uh, I had been a playwright in college, and so to me, plays, scripts were the natural way to write. I just took a while to learn that there's very little money in it. Uh, <laughs> and, and so uh, 
I remember very well my my I had a theater company that I started up in in uh, uh, Utah Valley in in the state of Utah and um, it lost money. This is not a shock. Theater loses money. That's just what it does. And uh, and I was just feeling frantic because I was oh maybe a thousand fifteen hundred dollars in debt, and I didn't know how I was going to get that. I was working as a proofreader at a university press. Well, I think by then perhaps I was an editor, uh, but uh, they paid us in small bags of dirt and seeds were extra. So uh, we, we, you know, it was not a, I had no prospect for repaying what I owed. And so I thought, well, what is it that I know how to do? Well, I knew how to write. And uh, I had sold nothing, but I'd at least gotten nice, encouraging rejection slips from editors. And I had uh, I had written a couple of uh, science fiction short stories that were kind of like Zena Henderson stuff, which is about people with, uh, I'll say now, magical powers, but at, at that time it was psionic powers, and they were given a gloss as science fiction stories. And I sent it off to, uh, set off several of those stories to John W. Campbell, who was still alive when I put it in the mail, and then I got back a letter that he had died. Would I like to still leave my story with him? And I mm-hmm. thought, well, of course, the magazine's not folding. Uh, but uh, I had no idea of what the science fiction community was about or what it was like. And uh, there would have been people who would rather have submitted it elsewhere than to not submit to John W. Campbell. But eventually, uh, Ben Bova took over, and I sent him one of those Zena Henderson-like psionic stories. And he wrote back a very nice letter that said, uh, at Analog, we publish science fiction. This is fantasy. Aha. And I learned a very important lesson. Science fiction is urban. Fantasy is rural. Hmm. Fantasy has trees. Science fiction has rivets. Hmm. Uh, That's the only difference that actually matters because that's what the cover will show. Yeah. If you've got something that's smooth-surfaced, it's science fiction. If you've got lots of trees looming, it's fantasy. And, uh, you know, anybody can check me out and see that that's what's really going on. How can they <laughs> sell it? How can they bring it to its audience? Um, the reason, though, that, that for me science fiction was an obvious choice was very practical. I needed to make money. And... You know, there was a lot more money to be had selling short fiction to Ladies Home Journal or to Red Book or, uh, uh, for that matter, to Playboy. Yeah. But there I would be competing with top, well-known writers in the field of mainstream fiction, uh, plus their editor-controlled genres, especially the women's magazines, so that I had some idea that by the time it's published, it bears little resemblance to your original story. So why would I give myself that kind of pain (laughs) when science fiction was a rapidly rotating uh, genre? That is, the magazines paid so little that, while the amounts of money sounded huge to me, $300, yes, uh, you couldn't make an annual living off of those. So science fiction writers who entered as short fiction writers very soon made the transition to novels, which had to mean that the magazines were always hungry for new writers. Interesting. So my chance of getting 
published in a science fiction magazine was much higher. Now, at the time that I did this, I had not read any science fiction in several years. You know, I was a playwright. I read plays hmm. and uh, and watched movies and stuff. So um, I figured that I could probably do well enough and not embarrass myself by violating some genre rules. And that proved to be okay because... After that letter from Ben saying we published science fiction, I thought, well, what do I have that's actually science fiction? Well, I had that story of the battle school that I had never written down and had no title. And I thought, oh, my character, my main character will be named Ender. So it's Ender's game. Ha ha, isn't that clever? I mean, you know, I was new. I was starting out. Um, and so I called it Ender's game. And my big insight was it's hard to train people to think in three dimensions, unless you start when they're very young. So these would be children in battle school being trained hmm. to think three-dimensionally uh, in zero-G space. And I based a lot of my thinking on uh, what I knew about World War I fighter pilots from a book by Nordhoff and Hall. Uh, and it, it was very wonderful, but the, the big thing was that what killed most new pilots was they would get up in the air and they would look left and right. And the guy that killed you was going to come over your shoulder or up from below uh, in, a, in a different plane. Hmm. Uh, not literally, of course, obviously a different airplane, but in yeah, a different yeah. uh, geometric plane. And so you would be taken completely by surprise because you weren't thinking three-dimensionally. So that, I used that. And used uh, my knowledge of, of uh, from the, the book series *The Army of the Potomac* by Bruce Catton. I knew quite a bit about Lincoln's search for a good commander for the Army of the Potomac. It took him a long time to find one. And uh, and while I did not really analyze them, I didn't reread the series. I had it in my memory, and most of my bad commanders were drawn from the Civil War. Uh, when I when I began writing them, so um, it, this was you know I sat down and I wrote it in a couple of days. Took two sessions of writing. I began it in long in longhand, and in fact, did I finish? No, I finished it typing. Uh, I'm a touch typist, so when I have a typewriter, I began it sitting on the lawn outside a venue that was holding a circus, and a girl that I was dating was taking her boss's children to the circus. There was no ticket for me, which is fine. I hate circuses. And so <laughs> uh, I sat out on the lawn and wrote, remember, the enemy's gate is down, and and created Ender talking to his uh, new army. Uh, and so uh, that was the beginning of, of Ender's game, the beginning of my career, though I had no way of knowing that. Sure. I sent that off to Ben, and he wrote back, very nice letter, said, I like this. I, I'd even like to publish it, but it needs a different title. I suggest Professional Soldier. It was a good, ironic <laughs> title, and I, but I couldn't have built a career on that. Uh, and, and he also said, it needs to be cut in half. Now, I actually don't write things that can be well cut. During the days when all audiobooks were abridged, or almost all, um, Bridgers had a horrible time cutting mine hmm. because you can't cut anything out. If it could be cut out, I didn't put it in. Yep. And so, you know, it's everything. The story doesn't make sense if you remove stuff. So, 
several uh, editors had, you know, strokes, uh, not really, but <laughs> uh, to, to trim some of my early work to uh, fit into an abridged audiobook format. Um, but uh, I didn't know that yet. This was my first potential sale. But then I thought, okay, he says to cut it in half. That means that to him it felt way too long. Why did it feel too long? What did I do that made it feel too long? And again, this is without rereading it, I realized I probably have too many battles in it. Interesting. And so I ran into the Quidditch problem then, long before uh, J.K. Rowling did. Uh, and, and the Quidditch problem is this. A game that isn't real, that didn't actually happen, on which you can't place bets, uh, is extremely boring after the first couple. Hmm. Uh, Quidditch, of course, is, is an incredibly stupid game because you might as well just have two seekers go after the snitch because that's all that mattered. Uh, but uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, with the battle room, with the battles, I went in and cut out one battle entirely, cut another one in half, and that cut out two and a half pages of the manuscript. Then I realized a few places where I wanted to elaborate on things, not battles, and added about four pages. So the manuscript I sent back to Ben was a page or two longer than the one he had told me I should cut in half. But I didn't remind him in my letter that he had told me to cut it in half. <laughs> what I said was I addressed the problems you mentioned. I would like to leave the title as Ender's Game. Uh, let me know what you think of it. Now, what he let me know was he sent me a check. And there you the endorsement go. of the check constituted a contract in those days from Analog. And so uh, Ender's Game sold for, now I can't remember the amount, I think $300. And it went a long way toward helping me pay my debts. Uh, and I sold a couple more, uh, both of them much more extensively rewritten because of Ben's comments. I was still learning how to write a story, let alone uh, a novel. Novels were way in the future still. But uh, um, Ben did a good job of helping me find the story in the next two manuscripts I sent him. But the one after that and the one after that, he just rejected outright. He said, this, is, this doesn't work. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's it. I had one story that I wrote myself, Ender's Game. Yeah. And the other two I wrote with tutelage. Um, and so I'm not a writer. At the same time, I was working as a magazine editor and rewriting other people's stuff. We got a lot of, of uh, submissions that were 10 pages and we needed to cut them down to two. That was my oh, job. And so, you know, these were not by professional writers and, and they were about religious topics. And so I would find a story inside their essay and I would tell, have that story told as much as possible in their words, and then their conclusions about it, and that's it. That's two pages. And uh, no one ever complained, so it, I must have done a good enough job of making them feel like it was still what they wrote. Um, anyway, I was doing that all the time, so I thought, wait a minute, I can write. I do know how to write. Why am I not selling? And here was the cynical thing that I did. Ender's Game 
had sold. Uh, it hadn't yet been published, but it had sold. And it was the one that sold as I, as I wrote it. Sure. Um, and so I imitated it. I thought, okay, I've got a kid in jeopardy. People are mean. Uh, he's in danger, and yet he's able to overcome all of the danger and triumph. And I wrote a little thing called Michael Songbird, M-I-K-A-L, S Songbird. And it used singing as opposed to some other kind of weapon. There was a, a songhouse, the music school, kind of a monastery, really, uh, rather than battle school. But I was following the Ender's Game formula, though I had invented that formula, as far as I knew. I was, sure. I was undereducated. And so um, that imitation also sold immediately. And in fact, because I, I finished the draft and immediately sent it off, I looked it over after it sold and realized, uh-oh. And so I made some important changes. And nobody asked me to. It had been bought. But I made some important changes, and Ben agreed to publish the new version rather than the older version. And that was, that was my beginning. That was when I realized, okay, I know how to do this. I have never yet, never since, um, imitated myself so openly. Uh, <laughs> but it worked that time. Uh, and I realized that's not really the formula. Uh, when I turned to writing novels, though, and turning short stories into novels, I had seen what other writers did when they took their prize-winning short story and then wrote a novel as a sequel to that from the beginning. Hmm. And so the, the short story became the opening, and everything afterward was really just a sequel, and usually nowhere near as good as the original story. So the novel gradually died as you were reading it. That's so common, at least at the time in the 70s. And, uh, and I thought, no, they're doing it wrong. Because you wrote a story with a great climax that had, that had emotional appeal. That's still your ending. Just start earlier. Uh, and that was what I did when I did the novel of Ender's Game, but it's also what I did before that with the novel Songmaster. I went back and did, uh, Ansett was the name of the, uh, the hero, the young hero, and did Ansett's upbringing in the songhouse uh, and that became the novella uh, songhouse which was published separately in analog and then I worked up to the climax of Michael Songbird and then I felt like I still needed to resolve some things and so it went on for about 75 pages after that now this was, was actually bad construction because the climax was really still the climax of Michael Songbird. And yet people would read that climax. It felt like a climax, felt like it was over, and there were still 75 pages to go. Ah, interesting. That is often puzzling to a reader. And in this case, it's a structural flaw. Hmm. Uh, nevertheless, that's what I did. And that 75 pages has its own emotional payoff so that anybody who kept going would... would uh, feel satisfied, I think, with that additional material. But I was puzzling my way through how to write a novel. Uh, at the time, I was reading 
Humboldt's Gift by Saul Bellow. Not my favorite novel, but reading Saul Bellow while writing Songmaster, don't imagine, imagine that I'm saying I write like Saul Bellow, but what it did was it allowed me to change my metabolism and write more, uh, progress more slowly through the story hmm. the way Saul Bellow does, did. And, uh, and so that helped me in writing a novel. Because as I once wrote in an article in, in Writer's Digest, a short story is like taking a speedboat across a lake. But with a novel, you can stop and fish whenever you want. <laughs> and, so, and so that's what I learned to do from, from reading uh, Saul Bellow was how to fish, how to stop and fish, and turn passing moments into scenes and minor characters into fun eccentrics that it was a pleasure to spend time with. And so, you know, here I am trying to learn how to write from other writers and from Writer's Digest magazine. Uh, I also, at the time, uh, while I was learning, uh, read uh, Dean Kuntz's uh, book on writing the big, sexy bestseller. I don't remember if sexy was in the title, but it was writing the big bestseller, something like that. Sure. And uh, at that time, I don't think Dean had had any bestsellers himself. But that's when we write our writing books is when we're starting out, because that's when we're thinking <laughs> about it. Uh, you know, anything I learned, I could write into my uh, characters and viewpoint or how to write science fiction and fantasy. And it was all fresh in mind. Now there are things that I know without even remembering that I learned them. You know, I just know them. Yeah. And it makes it much harder. You know, I don't know if I could write how to write science fiction and fantasy today. I know way more than I did then, but I don't have it codified. I'm not aware now of learning it. Uh, so, you know, yeah. it's, it's not a surprise that Dean wrote that, but uh, wrote his book then. But he had many interesting points, uh, fun anecdotes. It was a pleasure to read. And I felt like I was absorbing a lot more, but the most important thing that I learned was his assertion, don't write a first draft. Now, I may be paraphrasing him so radically that you won't find those words in it, but he said, if you write a first draft, you get sloppy because you think I'll fix that in the second draft. And then when you get to the second draft, You've already made all your decisions about what happens in the story, but you made them sloppily and badly. And any change you make then in Chapter 2 is going to reverberate through the whole book. Absolutely. And you're going to end up rewriting the thing anyway. So why didn't you write it that way in the first place? And I, that became a mantra in my mind. It's what I tell my writing students. There is no first draft. There is only a final draft. You write the final draft the first time. You write it in the cadences with the music of language. You write it in the way you intend your language to be read and received. And if you find yourself running into writer's block, that is the greatest gift your unconscious mind can give you because it's telling you, your unconscious mind is saying that you don't believe in or care about what you just wrote or what you're just about to write. Usually it's what you just wrote. You usually just wrote yourself off the page. You realized unconsciously that you don't believe in this anymore. 
Hmm. But you don't care about the character's situation anymore. And you can only write things you care about and believe in. You can't fake it. I mean, even if you're ghostwriting, even if you're trying to turn out some piece of crap. I mean, many science fiction writers back in the 50s got their uh, start as, as novel writers by writing pornography, uh, a much milder kind of pornography than, than we have now. But, uh, uh, and then this, the idea of uh, pornography customers reading uh, feels strange, uh, but the Internet didn't exist then, and dirty magazines uh, were not readily available, and so it was books. And they got their practice writing stuff they didn't care about, but here's the problem. You can't write it unless you care. So my guess, though I have not read any of their porn, uh, is that uh, they ended up finding stories and telling good stories, mm-hmm. whether they were writing porn or writing science fiction, which they regarded as real. Though so i got to say that literary writers regarded them both about equally at the time. Um, and so for me... You know, I didn't have the porn option. Good Mormon boys don't do that. Plus, the market had dried up. Uh, and so, uh, and also, I knew nothing, nothing about sex. So, pornography was out of my reach. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> what, I, what I did know from Dean Kuntz was, if I write it the way it's supposed to be the first time, then when it's done, it's done. Um, And so what I schooled myself to do was to write final draft language, to write at a quality level that never said, I'll fix that next time around, because there was not going to be a next time around. But if I got myself blocked, if I reached a point where I couldn't go on, instead of trying to write through it and follow my outline, which I have to say is a terrible idea, because if you've lost faith in your own story, then why are you still pushing on? What I would do is go back and reinvent something I had already written. And without looking at my previous attempt at telling that part of the story, I would now write a new final draft beginning at the point where I made the, started changing what happened and why. Interesting. And then I moved on. And that was a cure that has worked every time for writer's block, because my unconscious mind is way better at storytelling than I am. And so, you know, my conscious mind follows plans, draws maps, writes, writes out an outline. And I still do that, but my unconscious mind knows what a story is and decides which characters I'm really going to care about and decides which minor characters have to jump up and become major characters and which major characters I'm done with so I can kill them now. <laughs> um, and, and that kind of stuff, you really have to find by being in tune with, I have to say it, your feelings. Yeah. Uh, and so um, what I learned from Dean Kuntz is there is no first draft because there'll never be a second draft. That's like introducing your spouse to someone and saying, oh, this is my first wife. You don't do that. That's ridiculous because there's never going to be a second wife. You're there. You're in. And that's how you approach the story. You may go back and change, but the change will mean a new draft from that point forward, a new first and final draft. I learned after adopting that practice 
how wise Dean Koontz was. Because I have watched so many of my friends struggle with draft after draft, each of them worse than the one before. Mm. Because that's what inevitably happens. The first draft is the living draft. It's the one that flows from your mind onto the page most smoothly, especially if you're a touch typist, but even if you're writing by hand. It's the first draft that's alive. And what you do after that, you have friends criticize it, you get notes, you go back, you fiddle with the manuscript, making a little change here, a bigger change there. And each one of those is not part of that original draft. Each one of them is like a patch on your genes. Now, I, I lived in the era of the iron-on patch. I went to school with patches gradually peeling off my genes uh, in elementary school. Half the other <laughs> kids did, too. Yeah. And, um, and it doesn't look cool. You know, now it looks cool to have frayed and ripped genes, but not iron-on patched genes. Yeah. And, uh, and the, it's the iron-on patches that you're doing as you fiddle and fiddle and fiddle killing your story every time you work on it. It's already dead by the third or fourth time, but some of them, some people go 20 times through the same story, killing it again and again, uh, hacking it to bits. Whereas what they really need to do is without looking at the previous draft, go back, start over with complete freedom to have anything happen that you want. Now, Here's the problem that most writers run into. My students run into this all the time. Once you have written a complete draft, you're going to start having a mental mindset. And I've had students actually say this when I made a suggestion that would require a complete page one rewrite. Yeah. Um, and they say, but, but no, I can't change that. That's what happens. And I go, no, you made it up. It's all lies. Nothing happened you're going to start over and you're going to have different things happen and you're going to tell a different story, but it's going to be much better than the previous one. It'll resemble a previous one in some ways. I think one of the best examples is I'm, I'm sure that uh, most of your listeners have read Brandon Sanderson's uh, way of Kings and uh, oh, what are the two titles? Anyway, the Stormlight Chronicles um, and they're brilliant. They're absolutely wonderful. But we studied Stormlight Chronicles in a science fiction writing class that I taught a couple, a reading class, literature class that I taught a couple of years ago. And Brandon was kind enough to uh, Skype with us with the class. Oh, great. And what we learned from his um, conversation, from his presentation, was that the character of Kaladin in the first two books was not in the first draft. Hmm. It was all about the royals, the, the royal family. And the whole class was stunned because the character we loved most was Kaladin. Well, obviously, given the way the book is structured, in spite of the fact that Brandon committed the cardinal sin of the prologue, which, I mean, it takes two volumes before it even starts to make sense, so why did we need it? Uh, but I, I always, I hate prologues, even when I've written them myself. <laughs> they always turn out to have been a mistake. Um, but despite his prologue, once he started, it was Kaladin's book. Hmm. And that means that when Brandon went back 
to rewrite that almost successful story, he started over and did a page one rewrite. He did a new first draft. So whether he was conscious of that or not, I have no idea. We haven't discussed that. But it is, in fact, what he did. And it's, I still find that it works for every student who actually has the courage to try it because it's hard to let go of what happened and why in your bad first draft. Absolutely. And that's the way to fix it. you got to fix it by changing the story. I answered your question uh, for about 35 minutes. I'm aware of that. <laughs> but I covered, I no, covered great. The, the most important things that I learned when I was starting out. You know, the yeah, difference between science, science fiction and fantasy being uh, trees versus rivets, that is vital, uh, because if you start getting into the whole philosophical, metaphysical background of what's possible and not, most of science fiction uses impossible things like faster than light, uh, travel or communication and time travel. I mean, these things are impossible. And so it's fantasy. It's all fantasy, but it has a science veneer a technological veneer, that's all. Uh, and so the, the philosophical differences between the genres are trivial. The important difference is how you're marketing it, how you sell it. And so uh, you, you need to have in mind how you're doing it. But I've read wonderful dragon stories that were absolutely science fiction and wonderful time travel stories that were pure fantasy. Interesting. So, sure. You know, the, the, the genre differences are not important. If you look at who's writing science, uh, writing fantasy today, so many of the ones who are doing it best are science fiction writers who have found a new home. Nice. Um, yeah. if you, when you read Game of Thrones, the, you know, the song of, a Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, remember, he was an award-winning science fiction writer yeah. before he turned his hand to this amazing Graustark kind of novel, which is pseudo-historical fiction that just amazed me from the start. Now, it's actually a story too big to handle now. Yeah. And I think that's what George has run into on, on this. Not that he can't write it, he can, but when he took separated storylines so that he didn't try to follow all the stories in each volume, I remember how frustrating it was to me I loved reading about Tyrion, but what was happening with Jon Snow? I had to know. <laughs> and so it became frustrating for the readers. And in that sense, um, I think that Martin's story has outgrown his books. Uh, so I'm glad that, that the uh, film version, the HBO version, finished the story in a way that I am betting has something to do with Martin's original plan because he would have discussed it with them. Uh, there are those who feel that the movie ending was too rushed. I don't even disagree with them. They only had a certain budget, a certain amount of time to film, and so they had to rush the story at the end to get to the excellent, I think, perfect ending they got to. So I'll be rather disappointed if the book doesn't end the same way, unless George actually has something even better up his sleeve, which is not at all impossible. But I also remember Jim Rigney, Robert Jordan, uh, who did not finish Wheel of Time before he died. Now, Brandon Sanderson, I understand, did a very good job of finishing it up, 
and Sanderson is probably the better writer. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, that, uh, uh, Jim's, uh, Robert Jordan's, uh, vision was well served, but, um, nevertheless, he should have finished it. <laughs> he did off more than he had lifetime to do. He allowed his health to deteriorate, which a lot of writers do. I mean, for heaven's sake, we sit there typing for hours. That's our job. That's what we get paid to do. Yeah. And after that, either the computer game or the television screen is calling. And I heed <laughs> that call. Uh, it's not the call of nature. It's the call of tech. But nevertheless, uh, it gives me stories that I didn't have to work at. And so uh, uh, it's easy to live a sedentary life, to get overweight, to develop diabetes, uh, and to putter around on a on a scooter because you can no longer walk any distance. And when that sort of thing happens to a writer, it's, it's tragic because our brains, which write the stories, are connected to the body. It's the body that supplies the blood and the energy. And if you feel bad, if your body feels bad, it's really hard to concentrate and be excited about a story. Sadness is not where stories come from. Hmm. Vigor and enthusiasm are what drive you on to write. I, I tell my students that every writer has to simultaneously believe that Shakespeare would be envious of the brilliant work they're doing and that no one ever has written worse crap than what's coming out on your screen right now. <laughs> you have to believe them at the same time. Because without the belief in the brilliance of your work, how do you have the courage to do it? And without that constant skepticism that, for all I know, this is just worthless drivel, how do you change your mind about what you're writing? And if you can't change your mind, give it up. It's, you're not going to have a career. You have to be able to change your mind constantly while writing. You have to be open to new ideas the whole time. Because even though you've done a lot of outlining, you would think you've invented the whole story before you start, the best invention happens while you're writing and just pops into your brain unasked for. And if you ignore those things, find another line of work. Write training that, manuals yeah. because those do have to follow the outline perfectly. Uh, and so that's what you want to write is tech manuals. You want to write instructions on how to assemble a bicycle. These days, most of them are uh, written by people whose native language is not English. <laughs> and then they're corrected using grammar checkers, which are an abomination. Anyone who uses a grammar checker is not a writer and never will be. Because I got to tell you, I did this experiment back when I was writing a column for a computer magazine. I uh, got a grammar checker, the sure. one that everyone was touting. This one's wonderful. This one's great. And I took a column written by John Dvorak, who was uh, an outstanding, the best uh, columnist in the world of computers. I took that column, typed it in, made no errors of typing, uh, and then ran it through the grammar checker. And then made every change that the grammar checker suggested, ran it through again, made every new change that it suggested, <laughs> until finally the grammar checker suggested no changes. My gosh, it sounded like it was written 
by a graduate student from Korea who only learned English when he arrived on our shore. Hmm. It, it was just embarrassing. And I thought, okay, who is using these grammar checkers? Chances are very good, either completely uneducated Americans, which is most of them, uh, who have had no grammar training whatsoever, so they have no idea what even sounds right. They still think, oh, you've got to come in and talk to Jim and I. Uh, they still think that's English. It's, it's becoming the norm, and I hate it. But uh, you, you, if you write that way, you sound like the complete uh, ignoramus. But um, most people talk that way now, and eventually the language will change, and we will make it so that whenever you're referring to the first person in a collective, uh, it will be and I, whether object or subject. But anyway, uh, Americans use grammar checkers because they are correctly quite sure that they know nothing about grammar. Uh, and foreigners who need the grammar checker because they really don't understand English grammar, especially American English grammar. And so they are the victims of the terrible job that even the best grammar checkers do because computers can't do language. They try, but they just can't. They get it wrong over and over again. And so I, I read... Uh, stories by foreign writers who used uh, some online translator. And I think, oh, man, you need an actual interpreter, an actual translator, hmm. somebody whose native language is English but who speaks your language fluently so that he can create as good a draft in English as you wrote in your native language. I tried translating once. I speak Portuguese rather well. Uh, I spoke it much better in the 70s when I was living in Brazil, uh, but I still read it fluently. And a friend of mine, Braulio Tavares, a brilliant science fiction writer, I read an amazing story of his, and I thought, I want to translate this. And not even thinking that I would get Braulio's permission until after I had finished it, because how did I know whether I could do a good job? Right. I couldn't get through the first sentence. Hmm. How about that? Because it was idiomatic Portuguese, and there is no English that can convey that idiom at all. And, and I thought, I can translate word for word, and it doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. And, and it suggests something kind of similar. But translation's terrible. So I'm grateful that my foreign editions generally have been very well translated, or at least so I'm told by people who speak those languages natively. Some of them, not so good, but often those are countries where science fiction is treated as coloring books, mm. and so they don't care that much about quality. But in countries where they care, I, I hear that my Dutch and uh, various Scandinavian, and especially my French translations, uh, actually my French tra translations are probably better than, than my English original, How about uh, which is disturbing, but nevertheless, <laughs> it helps quite a bit. Uh, and I understand that my Japanese translations are amazing. And so, you know, I, what I have to do is to say, I'm so glad that I got some good translations, and I hope that eventually my work sells well enough, despite weaker translations in some other countries, that they hire a better translator to do later, th later books. So 
that's all that's in my control when it comes to interpretation. But here's the thing that we often forget as writers. We are all translators. Hmm. There's the story in our minds and our hearts, that unconsciously generated story that we care about and believe in. And then there's the crap that we put on the page. And if you start thinking that what you put on the page is the story, you're going to lose your way. Hmm. Because it's not. It's the roadmap. It's the blueprint for the story that the reader will create in their own minds. There you go. Yeah, that's true. And, and so that's why I have been confronted more than once in my career by a reader who absolutely remembered either a line, had a good friend who did this, uh, remembered a line from my book. And I have gone through the whole book. I looked at the digitized manuscript. That line does not exist in the book, but she taunted me with it constantly. And finally I said, Kathy, that book, uh, that that sentence is your creation, not mine. You created that, and it's a great line. If I had written it, I wouldn't be ashamed, but I didn't write it, so stop teasing me about having written it. Hmm. And she did. That that was uh, uh, a blessing. But I've had, I once had a guy when I was just, I had just written the novel Ender's Game, so I was doing a reading of an extensive portion of it in a hotel room, my hotel room, at a convention, and I had about a dozen uh, listeners gathered around sitting in the room read, uh, listening to me read. And at a chapter break, a guy sitting there said, oh, I've read this. I don't know why you think you can get away with this. That story was written by Barry Longyear. Huh. And I said, no. No, it wasn't. I had read, I was, at that time I was reading and reviewing every short story published in the field of science fiction. Hmm. I burned out eventually, <laughs> but for several years I read it all. And I had read every story written by and published by Barry Longyear. And he did not write anything that even resembles Ender's Game. Yeah. But we emerged at about the same time. And I realized what that had happened to this reader. In his mind... Very long year and I were the same guy. So when he read Ender's Game, he added it to his list of very long year stories. Because people don't sit there thinking the, the author's name through while, they, while they're reading. Yeah. They just think about the characters. And so while everyone in the room finally got him to, well, what he did was he left. Uh, because they were all saying, this is Car Card wrote the original. You read it in analog. <laughs> Uh, the short story, and this is an adaptation of the short story into a novel. And they all were agreeing with that. And he just could not shake his memory of its being a very long year story. I'm sure that he knows now, if he cares. Or he knows that Orson Scott Carter is a plagiarist. I'm never reading anything of his. Uh, <laughs> but but write, readers will construct their own story. Yeah. And in their story... Some minor scene will loom large, will be one of the most important moments in the story. Whereas the scenes that were most important to you, they go, oh, did that happen? I forgot. I forgot. Yeah. And you know that happens with movies, too. If you're recounting uh, the story of a movie to a friend who hasn't seen it, if you're doing it in the presence of someone else, they'll say, hey, you left out the complete plot about so-and-so. And you'll say, who? And then they'll remind you of this subplot. Yeah. And as often as not, when that happens to me, I, 
I have no memory of that subplot whatsoever. Uh, so, by the way, I never tell the plots of movies to people. Uh, <laughs> nothing more than a few long lines because, and that's another another that's a reason why I don't tell jokes. Is even if I remember the punchline, I don't remember the setup properly, so I screw it all up. So why would I do it? Uh, it's it's the thing that flows out of you when it's just being invented. Uh, that is the living story. And that's the reason why touch typing is so wonderful. Because if you get good at it, um, it's the skill that you need to learn besides grammar uh, as a writer. Uh, because writing by longhand slows you down hmm. so that you don't get the same rush of language that you get when you can type 100 words a minute. Now, since my stroke a few years ago, I don't type 100 words a minute, but I'm still above 50. Hmm. And it still flows pretty naturally because I also don't think as fast as I used to. <laughs> but uh, um, the, the skill of writing like speech is one that requires touch typing. So whether it's Mavis Beacon or a typing class, one of the best things my parents ever did for me was when I was in eighth grade, they enrolled me in a college writing course, a uh, typing course at the college where my dad was teaching. And I learned touch typing and became quite fast. I got up to 40 or 50 words a minute in that course. And, uh, and then in the subsequent years, I just got faster and faster. My goal was to type like my mother, who was the fastest, most accurate typist ever. Hmm. Uh, she regularly typed more than 100 words per minute, error-free. And I know that because those are the days of carbon copies where she would have to assemble six sheets of paper, five carbons, and feed them into the typewriter. And if she made a mistake, she said, I would have to erase every one of those copies or use liquid paper on it or whatever. Yeah. And it would look bad anyway. So why would I do that? So if she made an error with the last word on the that last line of the page, She'd pull the whole thing out and type it over. Have to rewrite it, yeah. Because, because it was faster. She typed so fast that retyping the page was markedly faster and more accurate and looked way better than uh, trying to make a correction trying on to fix six it. So learning to type and type accurately is really vital. And those who are using the Hunt and Peck method uh, or the two-finger typist, sometimes you can get up to good speeds. If you're meeting 40 words per minute, uh, typing with two or four fingers, people have their own method that they work out, great. You know, I have no complaint. I don't care whether you're using the standard QWERTY uh, typing method. Yeah. But uh, just get so you can type as fast as you speak or almost as fast as you speak. Uh, and, then, and then it's that uh, grammar thing. When I was working as an editor, I, I tried to perfect myself as an editor. So I read and reread and reread the Chicago Manual of Style, not the MLA handbook that is only useful for people with an academic career. Mm. The one that publishers rely on more than any other is the Chicago Manual of Style. And it will make you think about grammar and usage in ways you never have before. 
Uh, I always encourage my students to become obsessive about language, to read everything ever written by John McWhorter, M-C, capital W-H-O-R-T-E-R, including getting his, uh, downloading his uh, lecture courses from great courses, because no one has ever taught language better than John McWhorter. And I'm including Steven Pinker in that. Uh, Stephen Pinker is too much a disciple of, of uh, a particular viewpoint, whereas McWhorter is simply a disciple of language. And he loves it, and he's good at it, and he's a marvelous communicator. So, uh, you know, that's a painless way to learn about language, but to learn about English language and usage, it's the Chicago Manual. And you're going to find great things in there. You're going to find yourself fascinated with it, or you shouldn't really be writing because your work will be so attacked by copy editors who also were not educated in it, and so they'll make your writing worse, if anything. Uh, most of them. I've, I've run into a couple of excellent copy editors in my career, but only a couple. Yeah. Um, I was an excellent copy editor. So when I turn in a manuscript, if they're editing and finding more than one correction needed in every six pages, they're doing it wrong. Mm. And I, I always send along a notice saying, I know all the rules of commas. I know all the rules about periods and semicolons. I know them, but I write an oral style. I yeah. write the way I want the reader to read it. And therefore, I will break those rules. Just leave them alone unless mm. it's failing to communicate. If it's not yeah. communicating well because of my comma, then I'd love it if it's a note. And my copy editors know there is no such thing as a routine change. Every correction must be flagged. And every one of them is going to be changed back by me, except for about one every six pages. Now, now most writers are not that accurate uh, in what they turn in, and that's fine. But just remember that the more errors that are, that are in your manuscript when you turn into the more bad grammar, the more... Uh, things that make the copy editors start feeling contempt for you, the more they will treat your good writing contemptuously too. Hmm. And and so your relation with the copy editor, uh, you get the final say. Some editors get confused and think that's not true, but you don't work for them. They work for you. You're yeah. licensing the publisher to uh, edit and publish your work. And you have the final work. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. we need to be in control of our tools so that we don't leave it up to the copy editor to fix our writing, just the way we don't leave it up to a second draft to fix it. We write it in the flood of pure speech that comes out when we type fast as if we were telling the story to people gathered around the campfire, because that's our audience. I love that people image. People that we imagine who care about and believe in the same story we did. Now, Scott, that that's, um, yeah, that's fascinating. And it's so different from what most people teach. Most people teach you should throw down your first draft and then go back and recast it, as you said, or over and over. And I love this approach that you have where you write with fire and... Um, and you write the final draft as your first draft. It's it's interesting, and it's so uncommon. It's almost like I've never 
heard anyone really elaborate on why it's, it can be such an effective method. Well, here's what I suggest to people who have trained themselves in the second draft, third draft, fourth draft method. Don't think of it as a story you're going to publish. Uh, plan it out in your mind to enough of a degree that you know what you're doing when you start writing. I, I, in my writing books, I talk about structure, milieu, idea, character, event, to help guide you to find the opening place of your story. But uh, it's not a formula, and it's certainly not a literary critiquing method. Uh, it's just a tool to help you get from story idea to knowing where your, your beginning is. Uh, and then start at the beginning. Don't do a prologue. Don't go into the past. Start where your character gets involved in the events of the story. And with that in mind, just start writing and write it in a gush. Hmm. Write it as not, don't even think this is my final draft. Just think they're listening. I can't stop and rewrite. I need to just flood through. Uh, But then you still write it as well as you can. Now, what you're going to end up with is going to feel like a first draft to you. But if you're writing it out of that natural gush of your unconscious mind, you're also going to find that it's better than your first drafts usually are. Because instead of slopping it out, saying, I'll fix that later, you're trying to write it well from the start. Now, having said that sentence, I must also say, the worst writing I have ever had students do is writing when they're trying to write well with a capital W, Hmm. the way they've been taught by their English teachers, their literature teachers. Here's what good writing is, kids. And the teachers are wrong. That is not the reason why people loved Hemingway. It's not the reason why people loved Faulkner. The things that they tell you are useless to you as a writer. As a writer, you just tell what happens and why as clearly as you can. Metaphors and symbols take care of themselves. You can't tell a story without metaphors and symbols. But if you try to write them, then they'll all be obvious and clunky. But if you simply trust yourself that your writing will have them, then you'll write much better. So I had a student, first writing class I taught at the University of Utah. It was an evening class. And I had one student whose first draft of of something Truly, it was hard to even understand <laughs> what he was trying to say. Yeah. And the grammar was vile. And this was, you know, these were not written on computer. This was before computers were common. They were all typed. And, uh, and so it finally dawned on me what was happening. He was writing and then rewriting and rewriting and rewriting because you've had the experience. Everybody has where you say a word in English that you've been using for years, like, say, supernatural. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, you think, what a stupid word. Supernatural. <laughs> and you hate the word. And you don't know why. You don't know why it suddenly sounds strange. Why did you suddenly notice this? Beautiful. We pronounce it as bow. Why isn't it bodiful? Why isn't it, you know, and as a kid, I learned to pronounce it in my head as beautiful, so I would put in all the letters in the right order. I still think of it as beautiful uh, <laughs> because, you know, that's just what I taught myself in fourth grade. But uh, 
uh, words just sound stupid. Well, that's what was happening to him. Everything sounded stupid when he examined it. And so he would fix it and fix it and fix it until it was completely not English anymore. Mm-hmm. So here's how I helped him cure it. Gave him a three-by-five card. And this is before I learned to work with three-by-five cards from Algis Budras' Writers of the Future uh, workshops. Uh, but I had him write on a three-by-five card, not the story, not the manuscript, but just tell what happens and why in your story. And no, no dialogue, no scenes, just tell what happens and why. And here's the amazing thing. Not only were, were his sentences completely clear, everybody understood it was completely clear, but also his spelling was excellent. Hmm. He was actually a good speller until he looked back over his manuscript and doubted that he had spelled things correctly. That self-doubt thing is a killer. Yeah. That's what, what wrecks so many second drafts, is that you end up killing your manuscript. And this is not like Roberta Flack singing Killing Me Softly with his song. It's just killing the, the song with repetition. Uh, anyway, I've, I've labored, belabored that point too much, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's, it's something that all of your listeners can, can try out at least. And even if you decide that you still want to do second drafts, that's fine. It's not, you know, no skin off my nose. Uh, just keep in mind how precious that first draft is. Because, of course, if I have a paragraph that my first reader, my wise readers, tell me uh, just wasn't clear, they had to reread it, I'll rewrite that paragraph. Okay, sure. Um, yeah. Because I'm not an idiot. Uh, yeah. If I don't rewrite it, the copy editor will try, and they don't know what I meant. And so there are moments when you fix genuine failures of communication. Uh, do we have, I mean, I've, I've battled on so long, here, but <laughs> do you have time for me to, to make another uh, point about wise readers? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Um, I tell my students that while writing workshops can be very helpful in the sense that writing is a lonely job, and knowing that you have to bring a story to a writing workshop uh, can, be, can give you a deadline that in, incentivizes you to finish the darn thing. Hmm. So in that sense, writing workshops can be good. But the critiques from writing workshops are usually worthless because what you'll find out is how the other people would have written your story right. if they had written it. And so it will emphasize the things they cared about and believed in but not what you care about and believe in. And so my advice to people about writing workshops is take notes on everything they say yeah. and put your story and the notes away for at least six months, preferably a year, and then look at them again. You'll find most of the comments are inane. You'll find your story was better than they thought. But you'll find things in the story that you no longer feel satisfied with and that you want to change. And that wait for a year is better than a writing workshop because you're the only one who knows what story you want to tell. Now, I was just I'm going not to say these to are great what? ideas, you know. These, I was just going to say these are great ideas, and I, I feel like it's kind of a fresh voice out there for a lot of writers because it's uh, not what they typically hear from a lot of writing instructors. Well, no, they, they don't. But then remember who's teaching writing. 
people who went through graduate creative writing programs in universities and got their MFA. And so do they know how to write for a wide audience? No. They know how to write the kind of thing that gets published in a 3,000-copy edition by Knopf and uh, sells uh, 800 copies. That's, that's not something you can make a living on. Yeah. And, and so if you want to actually have writing be your livelihood, you're going to have to have a faster output, and you're going to have to write in language that communicates to the reader you're going to love this story. You're going to care about what happens to this character. You know, when I think of John Irving's uh, best work, which is about every other book, he and, he and Ann Tyler are both on a sort of an every other book schedule. Uh, Artie and then able to communicate with real people. But when I think of his excellent books, they're playful, they're fun. Uh, he, uh, but yet we have a core of a story that we can care about and believe in. Even with the absurd beginning of World According to Garp, John Irving made us love the characters. So that when we reach the driveway chapter, if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and one character goes unmentioned in the following chapter, you are devastated, hmm. absolutely devastated. It's one of the most emotional experiences of my reading career. Uh, when you read, um, uh, say, I always forget people's names. Um, he wrote Nobody's Fool, Russo, Richard Russo. Um, his first few books are so real and written in language for anybody. He was not trying to impress literature professors. Yeah. He was trying to communicate about common people to common people. And he was, for those few books, the best writer in America. Um, that's what we want to do, is to communicate yeah. with real readers, with people who are buying the book, not to try to figure out what you did to get published, but are reading it because they want a story that will fill their minds and their hearts. And if you're writing for that audience, you write a different way. You write the way I'm describing, frankly. Uh, because I've said these things to groups of professional writers, and most of the time I see them, most of them nodding. <clears throat> of course, it's the kind of writers who would gather in a room where I'm talking, which means no arty writers. Hmm. But, uh, you know, when I go to librarian conferences or uh, bookseller conferences, and I share a podium with uh, literary writers, I'm always astonished at what they value in their own work. As often as not, what they will choose to read, a short passage from their, the book they're touting right now, is their trunk dump. That is, they did research on their controlling metaphor. I remember one example. Her controlling metaphor in her story was geese. And she had researched every kind of goose, every breed of goose. <laughs> and so the passage she chose to read was a lovely flowing recitation of the names of species or, or groups of geese that she hadn't found a use for in the actual story. <laughs> it was deadly yeah. to listen to 
But she was obviously so in love with this list. It's what she chose to read, but I've had similar experiences again and again. Her sticks in my mind, but uh, there are many times. But the literary writer loves about his or her own work is not what readers who buy books for their own pleasure are looking for. Almost never. Just the fire of your language and your, um, it comes through, uh, you know, this, these ideas of not just following a grammar thing, but, but establishing your own voice and, and following story where it takes you, being receptive to it, even if it veers from your outline. I think all of these are great, you know, suggestions for aspiring authors. And for anyone who hasn't read your work before, do you have a place that you would love for them to start? Do you have a book where you say, man, if you're not familiar with my writing, here's a good place to start? Okay. If a reader is not terrified by the idea of reading science fiction and fantasy, if they haven't been taught to hate it by literature professors, then the place to start is Ender's Game. Hmm. Uh, it, I, I wrote it, as I write all my science fiction, intending it to be read by non-science fiction readers. Okay. So I guide you in to the tropes of science fiction quite gently. However, if you really just don't want to read science fiction, then um, I have a couple of suggestions, which are definitely not science fiction. Uh, one of them is a book called Enchantment. It's my retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story, uh, where Sleeping Beauty is discovered and wakened in the Ukraine in 1989 or 1990, 1991, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of my, I think it's maybe my best novel. The only one that is a rival to it in my own mind is a novel called Magic Street. Um, I can do a one-hour riff on it. I'm not going to. I'll just say it has a strong fantasy element, but it's set in modern-day Los Angeles, where music uh, magic starts spewing back into the world through a drain pipe in a little drainage area uh, in Baldwin Hills. The drain pipe is gone now, but it really existed when I wrote it, and uh, I even have pictures. And uh, I just had more fun with writing those characters in that situation than anything else I've ever written. And I'm, I'm proud of that book. Uh, I have a book called Empire that is a Tom Clancy-ish kind of thing, uh, near-future kind of uh, storytelling. Um, and there, there are others. Uh, sure. But, you know, uh, right now, some of the most recent a book called Lost and Found. Uh, it's published as uh, by, by uh, um, I can't say, I am hitting on all kinds of names that aren't my publisher. So, uh, <laughs> and it's what it is, is they recently got into publishing original books, actual print books, and I'm not finding the name. But I've had a relationship with them for years. I just have memory problems. Anyway, uh, I wrote Lost, Lost and Found. That's not Lost Boys. I wrote a story called Lost Boys. It's the most emotionally demanding thing I've ever written, and many readers can't. And it has a prologue that I should never have put on. Uh, it's a bad prologue. 
uh, well-written, but kills the book. But uh, I have a, a Christmas book called A Town Divided by Christmas, which has no fantasy element, no science fiction element whatsoever. I've written some biblical novels uh, that are from the point of view of the wives of the patriarchs. So there's Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel and Leah. I'm still working on that series, so there are at least a couple more uh, books in it. But they're told from the point of view not of the prophets, because that would force me to make the reader decide whether they believe God talked to these men or not, hmm. but from the point of view of their wives, uh, who experience it as husband coming home and saying, guess what God told me, hmm. which is an entirely different proposition. Readers still can decide what they believe or don't believe. Um, and a series called Pathfinder that definitely is science fiction, but it's YA, and I'm really proud of it. Mither Mage is definitely fantasy, starts with a lost gate. Um, so, you know, what you're finding out here is I really love my children, hmm. and I'm proud of them all, even the, the poorly written ones. It's not their fault. It was just the genes I gave them. Um, <laughs> and so... You know, e even though early in my career I tried to go back and fix some of them, uh, my wife persuaded me that I would do better by just writing new novels sure. instead of trying to rewrite old ones. Uh, though I did a pretty good rewrite of, of Capital and The Worthing Chronicle uh, when I rewrote the, the Worthing stories into the book now, The Worthing Saga. Um, so, you know... Early work fixed. Anyway, readers who were wanting to find out my stuff, what, what, what I write, uh, I'm a better writer now than I was when I started out. But then at the same time, in the year 2000, something happened to my process so that I really don't know if I can trust what I've written since then. I am proud of it. I enjoyed writing them, but it used to be that I knew whether the story was working because it was working for me. Hmm. I found myself really caring about and believing in the characters. I wept when I was writing the last chapter of Lost Boys. I could, you know, it's a good thing I'm a touch typist hmm. and that I, my fingers could find the home keys uh, because I couldn't see the screen. Um, and I was involved in the stories as I wrote them. But in the year 2000, my son Charlie Ben died. Mm. It was not unexpected. He had cerebral palsy. He died at exactly the age, 17. That is the average for people with his kind of CP. Mm. So we couldn't feel bad for him. His imprisonment in that body was over. But I found when I went back to writing that I had no heart. Mm. My heart was broken. Yeah. And, and so when I was writing, I couldn't tell whether it was any good. I knew how to tell the story. I knew what should happen next. But I was sort of going through the motions, and I, ever since then, have had to rely on my wise readers to tell me whether I actually have a story worth telling. I have to trust them, because I just don't know. Hmm. And sometimes I'm looking at it going, who would ever want to read this? And then one or another of my wise readers, oh, and I love what you're doing with this particular character, and Okay, okay. It's working better than I thought. But 20 years of coasting on what I learned about writing, I'm still learning more about actual technique, but 
when you lose heart, it's really time to change careers. Hmm. And so really, I should be teaching. I love teaching, but nobody will pay me to teach. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I teach at Southern Virginia University, but I donate my time uh, because they couldn't afford me. They couldn't afford to replace my writing income. So that's the way it goes. I'm trapped now into being a writer uh, if I'm going to meet the expenses that I have incurred. Well, that's one of the sad things about being a writer is you can get trapped in it. Well, Scott, we believe in your writing, and we hope that you'll continue to produce your stories and trust that, uh, that they are finding an audience. And I really, really appreciate, sincerely appreciate all of your time and your insights. And, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners as well. For more information about other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, you can go to iTunes or Spotify, look for The Story Blender, or click to thestoryblender.com. And don't forget to like and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone. Stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.